words said to God, Yahweh, is it true that for you, a thousand years is just a minute? Yahweh said, yes, that's true. Yahweh, is it true that for you a million dollars is just a penny? Yahweh said, yes, that's true. Yahweh, give me a penny. <laughs> Yahweh said, certainly, it'll only take a minute. One of the wonderful things happening in the Catholic Church these days are Catholics, because of the Second Vatican Council becoming biblically literate. In fact, many Catholics can even now quote chapter and verse like a good old Southern Baptist. I heard a story about a newly ordained priest. He was sent to his first assignment, and the senior pastor said, today, go out and meet five people in our parish and introduce yourself. His first stop was the young widow Brown. And he knocked on the door and there was no answer. And he called out three times, Widow Brown, Widow Brown, Widow Brown. No reply. So the priest took out his ballpoint pen, a piece of paper, and he wrote in a piece of paper, Rev 320. And later the Widow Brown picked that up, ran to her Bible, and looked up Revelations 320, which says, I'm standing at your door, knocking. If you open, I'll come in, sit down beside you, and have supper with you. The following Sunday, the young widow Brown came to church. And after the service, she passed by the priest and slipped a piece of paper into his pocket. Later, he went to his room and he read Gen 3.10. He ran to his Bible, looked up Genesis 3.10, which said, I heard you calling, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> Little knowledge is a dangerous thing, isn't it? <laughs> There's a scene in chapter 11 of Luke where Jesus appears to be exhausted from the ministry. He's up to here with people, wants to be alone, so he steals away from the crowd in search of a quiet place to pray. Within a short time, the apostles notice his absence. They set out in pursuit. They come around a little turn to Kidron Valley. They almost stumble over Jesus. He's on the ground, mute, motionless, utterly absorbed in prayer. They'd never seen a man pray as Jesus prayed. There was a peace that flowed out from him, touched them. They wanted to pray as Jesus prayed. So when at last he arose from the ground, one of them asked Master John the Baptist, told his disciples how to pray, would you teach us? At that moment, Jesus of Nazareth revealed to women and men of all ages the true face of God. He said, when you pray, you are to say, Our Father. Our Father. Familiar words. Maybe so familiar, they're no longer real. Those words were not only real, they were revolutionary to the Twelve Apostles. Many prophets and just men had longed to hear those words and never heard them. Isaiah, greatest of the prophets, began his ministry with a vision of Yahweh, seated on a high and lofty throne, surrounded by a choir of angels, chanting, holy, holy, holy. But Isaiah never heard what the apostles heard that day. For Ezekiel, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Joel, for every Israelite, Yahweh was the holy, strong, immortal one, a personal, stable, faithful, relating being, not fickle or capricious like the Canaanite gods who were often identified with the forces of nature, wind, fertility, fire, and so forth. No, Israel knew a stable God. He was like the rock of Gibraltar in the wind of changing events. For the average Jew, God had a face, a bit of a deadpan perhaps with a touch of kindness, something like uh, mm, Charlton Heston or Matt Dillon of Gunsmoke, pursuing a kidnapped child over Indian country through the desert, right into the heart of Mexico, unrelenting dependability. Israel knew that she was not the hunter, but the hunted, and yet no Jew ever dared to pray in the sense that Jesus taught, our Father. This is the revolutionary revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle had arrived through human reasoning at the existence of God, and they called him in vague, impersonal terms, the uncaused cause, the immovable mover. The prophets of Israel had revealed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a warmer, more passionate manner. But only Jesus revealed to an astonished Jewish community that God is truly Father, that if you took the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, think about that for a moment. If you took all the goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, tenderness, wisdom, strength, and love, and united them all in a single person, that person would only be a faint shadow of the love and the mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and to me this moment. We catch a beautiful echo of this teaching in chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans where he writes, the spirit that you have received is not as of old a spirit of slaves to govern you by fear, but rather a spirit of adoption that allows you to cry out, Abba, Abba, dear father. American child psychologists tell us that the average American baby begins to speak between the ages of 14 and 18 months. Regardless of the sex of the child, whether it's a little boy or a little girl, the first word normally spoken at that age level is da, 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 daddy. A little Jewish child speaking Aramaic in first century Palestine, the time of the historical Jesus, would at that same age level begin to say, Ab, 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 Abba. Do you see why the revelation of Jesus on the nature of God is so revolutionary? Why no Christian can ever say, ah, oh, one form of prayer is as good as another, one religion is as good as another. What Jesus Christ is teaching his people is that the God in whose presence Moses had to remove his shoes because he was standing on holy ground, the God from whose fingertips this universe fell, the God beside whose power the nuclear bomb is nothing, the God beside whose beauty the Grand Canyon is only a shadow, Jesus says we may dare to address the infinite, transcendent, almighty God in baby talk with the same intimacy, familiarity, and reverence as a 16-month-old baby sitting on its father's lap calling dad, dad, daddy. Do you believe this to the point that you pray this way? Or have we gotten into what Jesus reproached the Pharisees for? You people multiply words, believing that by the sheer multiplication of words, you're going to win a hearing. Is your own personal prayer life characterized by the simplicity, the childlike candor, the boundless trust, the easy familiarity of a little one crawling up in his daddy's lap, knowing that daddy doesn't care if the child falls asleep, or he starts playing with his toys, or she starts talking to her little friends, because the daddy knows the child is essentially chosen to be with him for that moment. Is that the spirit of your interior life coupled with the profound reverence that Jesus says to the hallmarks of authentic Christian prayer? I was given a day of renewal in Trenton, New Jersey. I arrived the night before. I stopped at a convent to visit two nuns who were friends of mine. Directly across the street from the convent is a synagogue. The rabbi and the nuns were in cordial terms. That night there was a bar mitzvah at the synagogue, so the rabbi invites the nuns over to the dinner. Since I'm visiting, he invites me to tag along too. Well, reluctant as I am to accept a free dinner, that's a lie. I wander over, there's the rabbi sitting at the head of the table, little yarmulke, you know, skull cap, thick black beard, black suit, white shirt, tie. There's the rabbi's wife, his children, the nuns, myself. Midway through the meal, the rabbi's four-year-old son got bored with the adult conversation, finished what he had in his plate to eat. He gets up and he wanders about 15 feet away from the table, and then he lost his bearings, didn't know where he was, minor panic, turns around, spots his father at the head of the table, goes running as fast as his little legs would carry him, two feet away from the table, he flung himself on his father's lap, and he shouted, Abba, Abba. Jesus says this is the true posture of Christian prayer. A little Israeli child sitting on his father's lap, 
plucking his beard, calling Abba, Daddy, my Daddy. Because of this central revelation of Jesus, and by the way, that great biblical scholar Georgim Jeremiah says, the four-letter word Abba, A-B-B-A, is the primary, most important revelation of Christ in the entire New Testament, and has opened up the possibility of undreamed of, unheard of intimacy with God in prayer. If you were an Orthodox Jewish father going to work this morning, your children would gather in the doorway, tug on your pant leg, and say, hurry home tonight, Abba. Can you imagine the shock and the scandal Jesus caused when he went through Judea and Galilee and invited his listeners to address the omnipotent transcendent God in the same colloquial form of, a, of address that their own children used with him that very same day? The Jews called him a seducer of the people, a blasphemer. But Jesus said, that's the way you're to address the Almighty God. You know, biblical scholars today speculate that the 178 times that Jesus uses the word Father in the four Gospels, he actually never said the word Father, which is the English equivalent of the Greek pater. Rather, they say, he always used the word Abba, that the Lord's Prayer should begin Abba, hallowed be your name. Why then do we find Abba only three times in the New Testament, once in the Gospel of Mark, and twice in Paul's letters in Romans and Galatians? And the biblical scholars speculate that the evangelists were still so intimidated, so stunned by the revelation that God is Abba, that they stayed primarily with that more formal and distant term, Father. Because of this revelation of Jesus, that God is Abba, no disciple of Christ can any longer picture God merely as the supreme being, whatever that means anyway, or as the great hangman in the sky, or the invisible honorary president of outer space, or as a celestial gas, or a genial George Burns, or a Dutch uncle, or a policeman of the club is going to bat us over the head every time we stumble and fall. We cannot picture God as a niggling customs officer rifling through our moral suitcases to sort out our good deeds and bad. Because God is Abba, a whole new climate pervades the prayer life of a Christian, and Paul insists in Romans, the climate is not one of fear and trembling, but rather one of loving, giving, and caring. Yes, caring for God. I was going to say, if you ever get back east to a little seaside resort called Belmont, New Jersey, give my dad a call. Tell me you met me. You think I'm wonderful. He'll take the day off, invite you to dinner, and compliment you on your marvelous discernment of character. My dad died this past March. The, uh, the kindest man in his later years I've ever known in my life. I am so proud of him. He was the face of Abba to me. John says in his first letter, we're not merely called God's sons and daughters. We are, in fact, God's sons and daughters, not by divine nature, as Jesus is, but by divine adoption. And the Holy Spirit is important to our hearts that we too might cry, Abba, Daddy. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes in chapter 4, the proof that you are sons and daughters is the fact that God has poured forth into our hearts the spirit of his Son, which cries, Abba. You're no longer slaves, but sons and daughters, and the fact that you're sons and daughters makes you heirs of the kingdom by God's design. Now, if you really believe this, that the Abba of Jesus loves you unconditionally, as you are, and not as you should be, if you truly believe that he loves you, not the person next to you, but you, beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, if you honestly believe that you've only checked in to the hotel of earth overnight, that you're en route to the heavenly Jerusalem, that you're going to drink new wine forever at the Messianic banquet table, if you truly believe that you are a child of your Abba and an heir of the kingdom of God, then, in the words of John Powell, please notify your face.
But good start looking like we're saved, huh? Like we're going to the kingdom? Remember 120 years ago, the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche reproached a group of Christian women. He said, yuck, you make me sick. When their spokesperson asked why, he said, because you redeemed don't look like you're redeemed. You're as guilt-ridden, confused, neurotic, frightened, adrift in an alien environment as I am. I'm allowed. I don't believe in anything. But you people claim to have a savior. When are you going to start looking like you're saved? My friends, I didn't come way out here from the tropical weather of New Orleans to the smog of Los Angeles to mince words, beat around the bush, or indulge in wishful thinking. My name is Brennan Manning. I'm a son of my Abba, and I'm going to that kingdom. The greatest gift I have ever received in my life from Jesus Christ has been the Abba experience. I can only stutter and stammer. It beggars my speech to talk about the impact of the Abba experience in setting me free from the fear of death, from the fear of life, and from that great fear posed by my own malice, my own capacity for infidelity. I will never forget a retreat I gave in the Midwest, large one, four or 5,000 people. Every night after the service, I go to this room. People came for counseling, for healing prayer. On well, this one night, the line ended at midnight. I was exhausted. Went right to my uh, room in the motel, right to bed. One o'clock in the morning, the rap on my door. And I hear a squeaky little voice saying, Brandon, can I talk to you? I get dressed, open the door. It's a 78-year-old nun. I said, come on in, sister, have a seat. What can I do for you? She began to cry, little frail woman. And her whole body was just shaken with the sobbing. I felt utterly helpless, powerless. Finally, when her tears subsided, I asked her, do you want to talk about it? She said, I've never told anybody this in my whole life. It started when I was four years old. My father would crawl into my bed with no clothes on. He would tell me to touch him there. He would touch me there. He said that's what the doctor said we should do, to know one another better. When I was nine years old, my father took my virginity. And by the time I was 12, I knew about every kind of sexual perversion you'd read about in a dirty book. She said, Brennan, do you have any idea of how filthy I feel? I have lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself. I only go to the communion table when my absence there would be conspicuous. I prayed with her for about 20 minutes. And then I asked her, sister, would you be willing for the next month to go off to a quiet place every morning, just sit down in a chair, close your eyes, upturn your palms, and pray this one phrase over and over. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. It's a prayer, by the way, that's exactly seven syllables, and seven syllables corresponds perfectly to the rhythm of your breathing. You inhale on Abba, exhale, and I belong to you. At the outset, of course, you say it with your lips but then your mind becomes conscious of the meaning, and most importantly, in a figurative sense, you press your head then into your heart, so that now, Abba, I belong to you, becomes what the French call un cri de coeur, a heartfelt cry, the depth of your being, establishing at the beginning of each day who you are, why you're here, where you're going. It's a prayer you can pray, driving on the freeway, sitting watching television, making a bed, eating a meal, frying an egg, walking through the mall, uh, watching, uh, your children play, sitting in church. And when you do this, I mean literally hundreds of times a day without moving your lips, and it becomes syncopated with the rhythm of your heartbeat, then you can, as Jesus in Luke 18, pray all day long and never lose heart. I asked his old nun, would you try it? She said, yes. And two weeks later, I received the most moving and poetic letter I've ever gotten in the ministry. This old woman described the inner healing of her heart the complete forgiveness of her father, an inner peace she'd never known before, and she ended her letter this way. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm just daddy's little girl. That is not sloppy sentimentality. 
That is a woman daring to pray with the simplicity, childlike candor, boundless trust, easy familiarity, and deep reverence that Jesus said would stamp the prayer of a disciple. When I wake up in the morning, I prop a second pillow under my head, and the first word, pre-reflectively out of my heart, is Abba, I belong to you. When I lay my head in the pillow at night, the last word I whisper before I fall asleep is Abba, I belong to you. Jesus said, I'm the way. The way where? The way to Abba. I'm the truth. I share only with you what I've received from my Abba. I am the life. I share with you the very life I received from my Father through the gift of the Holy Spirit. A real relationship with the Abba of Jesus is always the sign of a mature life of Christian prayer. Do you remember that scene? <coughs> it's in uh, chapter 15 of Luke, where the Pharisees are really strung out because Jesus is hanging out with turkeys, ragamuffins, losers, the rabble who know nothing of the law, and they say, Jesus, you claim to be a prophet. Why do you associate with the riffraff, all of these moral failures? And Jesus replied, I'll tell you why. Because I know what my Abba is like, and you don't have a clue. And then Jesus proceeded to tell that pearl of the parables, the prodigal, often waste and wandering, who returns home. The most moving sentence in the entire Bible for me is in Luke 15, 21. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and took pity on him. He ran to him. It's the only time in the Bible it ever says that God ran. Could you imagine going out the door tonight and somebody walks across the street you haven't seen in three years, the closest friend you've ever had in your life? Can you get in touch with the ecstatic joy? You don't care what the person's done the last three years, all you know is you see him, and you go running, stumbling, falling toward him. And the father then, as the Jerusalem Bible says, clasped him in his arms and kissed him tenderly. Just suppose you had a son that you put through an Ivy League school back east. Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, Dartmouth. One of those places. Room, board, tuition, spending money, plane just back here to the uh, Los Angeles area, Southern California, to the tune of about $180,000 for four years. Your son graduates, manu cum laude. You're very pleased with him. You're very proud of him. You say, son, let's have a graduation party you host it, but behind the scenes, I'll pick up the tab. And spare no expense, as many people as you want, whatever you want to eat and to drink, any kind of entertainment. He takes you to your word. He invites 550 people. <coughs> Classmates from school, families, neighbors, relatives, friends. It's a magnificent night. You've got this beautiful backyard. There is everything to eat and to drink. There's champagne, there's caviar. Chateaubriand, baked Alaska. Twinkies, M&Ms, pizza. Bruce Springsteen flies in, does a one-hour set in your backyard. <laughs> right behind him, Dublin Island comes the rock band U2. The kids are rocking and rolling until dawn. Party finally breaks up. At 6 a.m., you sit down in front of the fireplace with your son, and you say, son, I hope you enjoyed your graduation party. You deserved it. He looks at you with contempt and says, I'm finally going to live with you for the first time. I can't stand you, your face, your guts, your sick, washed values, and all that religion crap really turns me off. But I do thank you for my diploma. That's my passport to suburbia. My ticket to La Dolce Vita, to the sweet life, oh yeah, tomorrow. My insurance policy, for $100,000 matures, I'm cashing in and splitting. Good night and goodbye. He walks out the door, you're devastated, you're heartbroken, but you can't stop him. He's 23 years old. For the next three years, you literally don't know if he's dead or alive. <clears throat> Never a letter, postcard, phone call, police, missing person can't find him. Three years later, it's a Monday morning, 3 a.m., you're sound asleep, your doorbell rings, you wake up, put on your robe, you trip down the stairs, you open the door, and you stand there in shock. There's your son on the steps, booze on his breath, lipstick on his collar, his eyes disoriented, his clothes all disheveled. What would you do? 
what would you really do? Would you throw in all the lights in the house? Call to your spouse and say, hurry down, honey, break out the dumb Perignon, play Handel's Messiah. Bobby's not dead, he's alive. He's not lost, he's sound. I'm taking two weeks off from work. We're going to party for 14 days. If you did that, you know what your friends and neighbors would say? <whistles> your cheese just slid off your cracker. You don't have both oars in the water, man. You're a very sick person. You spoil that kid right in the beginning. You keep spoiling him. He's never going to change. You're crazy. But in Luke 15, Jesus says, that's the way your Abba is. He wants you home more than you want to be home. And once you arrive on the scene, without any elaborate act of contrition, any profound statement of repentance, he throws a new robe over you, drags you into the banquet hall before you can run away again come up with any other ending to the story of the prodigal son than the one given by Jesus. For example, take the kid at his word. He says, Father, I don't deserve to live in your house. You got that right, punk. Get a job in a motel, let you know in a year if you're getting back in the house. Or give him a sermon on sowing his wild oats. Look, you played the tune, now you pay the piper. You know, there are consequences to your actions. Or just humiliate him. Let him stand there and tell him how the good name of your family has been disgraced, uh, here in Newport Beach, by his outrageous behavior, come up with any other ending to the story of the prodigal than the one given by Jesus. And you have just destroyed the noblest picture of redeeming grace ever given by Christ to the human community. And you have just reduced the Abba of Jesus to the level of human virtue. Sad to say next Sunday, There'd be a lot of preachers and televangelists out there furnishing the alternatives I've just listed. And the result is that today so many of God's people are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. Here's something you may not have known. I came across this in doing some historical research. The early American Indians had a unique practice in training young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after various trials in hunting, scouting, fishing, the final test of a boy's maturity, and after this he became a full-fledged warrior in the tribe at age 13, was this. He was placed in the center of a dense forest to spend the whole night alone. Until that night, he'd never been away from the security of his family in the wigwam in the larger compound of the tribe. Now he's blindfolded, taken several miles away, and placed in the middle of a woods <clears throat> so thick, even the moonlight couldn't penetrate. The boy wasn't scared. He was terrified. Every time a twig snapped, I thought it was a wild animal ready to pounce. After what seemed more like a month than a single night, the first ray of sunlight penetrated the interior of the forest. The boy looked around. He saw flowers, the outline of the path. And then to his utter astonishment, he saw his father standing about 20 yards away behind a tree armed with a bow and arrow. He had been there throughout the night. Don't you suppose that young boy thought, oh, if only I'd known my father were there, I wouldn't have been afraid of anything. Jesus lived and died teaching his people, my Abba, who is your Abba, is beside you night and day, <clears throat> armed not with a bow and arrow, but with the love and the power of a spirit to protect you from any danger. So do not live in fear, little flock. It has pleased my father to give you the kingdom. Why? Not because you're terrific. Not because you're saying the right things, doing the right things, or becoming the right things. You inherit the kingdom of God because my Abba, in that lovely Greek word, eudokia, in his good pleasure, with sheer delight, wants to give you the kingdom. Let me close by sharing one final reflection on this theme of Abba. From the time as a little boy, I was told that the essence of the Christian life is to be Christ-like. Or as William Penn, the founder of the Quakers, said, to be like Christ is to be a Christian. Well then, if that's true, you must understand that the inner life of Jesus, his own interior personal life, was totally Abba 
The inner life of Jesus is a life of growing intimacy, trust, and love of his Abba. You cannot turn a page of the Gospels without hearing Jesus saying something like, <clears throat> my meat is due to the will of him who sent me. I do nothing on my own. Don't want to see my Abba doing. Jesus, your mother's outside. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? Whoever does the will of my father is my mother, my brother, my sister. Jesus strolls down the road and prays spontaneously, Abba, I praise you. You have hidden these things from the wise and clever and revealed them to little children. Abba, glorify your son, that your son might glorify you. Abba, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the inner life of the Jesus we are called to be like, a life of growing intimacy, trust, and love of his Abba, and that relationship reaches its flood tide in Jesus' passion and death. I'd ask you to be patient with me as I develop this last insight. We know from chapter 10 of John's Gospel that Jesus knew himself to be a hunted man. There was a warrant out for his arrest, and that's what gives the heavy sense of foreboding to the Last Supper scene. Jesus leaves the upper room, goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and gives, him over, gives himself over completely to the burden that he's carrying. Apparently that night, it was revealed to Jesus fully what it was going to cost him to fulfill his mission as servant of righteousness over sin. And that awareness filled Jesus with such a sense of dread and terror that in the words of one theologian, Christ was like a trapped animal in the garden clawing for some way to escape. Jesus sinks to the ground, and as Luke notes, his beads of sweat become drops of blood. At that moment, Jesus begins to pray. And what is the first word that arises spontaneously, pre-reflectively from his heart? Abba. Abba. If it's possible, let this cup pass me by. But let it be done your way, not mine. Jesus surrenders anew in trust, obedience, and love to his Abba, rises from the ground, no longer any sense of being a trapped animal, but completely at one with his father, he goes forward to meet his accusers. Now, following Luke's narrative, Jesus is taken from Gethsemane to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas sends him to his father-in-law Annas. Annas sends him back to Caiaphas. Caiaphas sends Jesus to punch his Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate pronounces the death sentence, and Jesus is led out to Calvary. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is his greatest act of trust in his Abba. He plunges into the darkness of death, really not knowing what lies on the other side, confident that somehow, some way, his father will vindicate him. Jesus' voluntary disengagement from life is his greatest single act of hope, confidence, trust in his Abba. It wins for him and every one of us fullness of life. The word he had spoken 20 years earlier to his mother in the temple, didn't you know that I must always be where my Abba is? That brought him to this. How differently Mary must have heard that word as she stood at the foot of the cross. But now Luke leads us into the moment in Jesus' life that is more shrouded in mystery, denser with misunderstanding and incomprehensibility than any other. Jesus, the eternally beloved Son of the Father, the man whose life simply does not make any sense except in terms of growing intimacy, trust, and love of his Abba, is abandoned by his Abba. Sin appears to have its sway over the entire world. For the first time since he was a small child, Jesus seems, feels himself to be without the sustaining presence of his father and in the inner bleakness of forsaken aloneness, in the desolation of abandonment, in a scream that may have split the sky, Jesus cries out, Amen! Amen! Lama Sabachthani! My God, my father, why? Why have you forsaken me now? St. John of the Cross says it will never, ever be given to any human heart to understand the depth of desolation, utter abandonment, indescribable loneliness, and complete forsakenness that lie behind Jesus' cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani.
I would repeat, I am speaking to the central, the most important theme in the personal life of Jesus, the theme that lies at the very heart of the revelation that Jesus is, his growing intimacy, trust, and love of his Abba. And here on Calvary, even this, the felt experience. Once again, the felt experience of his Abba's presence is handed over in the final foolishness of love. That might be very well to remember. The next time you're tempted to abandon quiet time, the word, meditation, contemplation, the worshiping community on Sunday morning, because it's all gotten so boring, so dry, so arid, so empty, so desolate. When your prayer life is desolate, you are in the company of some very great men and women of prayer. In fact, you're in the company of Jesus himself. Now, from what follows in Luke's narrative, there is no indication that Jesus ever lost trust or confidence in his Abba. In fact, from what follows, it appears that the first ray of Easter light fell upon the cross on Good Friday. It is the considered opinion of the man who, in my mind, is the greatest biblical scholar in the world today, a Frenchman named Pierre Benoit, teaching at L'Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem, one of the great centers of biblical scholarship in the world. By the way, to meet Pierre Benoit is to meet a transparent window into Jesus. I had the privilege of living with him for six months uh, in Saint-Rémy in France. You often see him walking around with a, with a pail of water and a towel over his shoulder. You say, what are you doing, Pierre? He just says, these are the tools that Jesus left his servant community. He'll send me somebody today whose feet I can wash. Benoit is a brilliant scholar, writes and speaks 12 biblical languages, written over 40 books of exegesis, hermeneutics of the Old and New Testament. And after 42 years of praying over the passion and death of Canon Luke's gospel, Pierre Benoit believes that the Abba of Jesus spoke to his son as he hung naked and nailed to the wood with the spit dribbling down his face, his body bathed in blood, and Benoit believes that the father spoke to Jesus in the words of the Song of Solomon from the Old Testament. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. For you, the winter is past. The snows are over and gone. The flowers appear in the land. The season of joyful songs has come. The cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. Let me see your face, and let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is beautiful. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. The Father, calling Jesus home, who in intimacy of life and love that defy description, where he tears wiped away, where there's no more mourning and no more sadness. And Jesus seems to hear the voice of his father because his last word on the cross is a response from the powerful, profound intimacy of his own heart. Jesus cries out, Abba, Abba, I'm coming. I'm coming home. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. Into your heart, I commit my heart. Abba, it's finished. It's consummated. I'm coming home. And the torn, broken, lacerated body of Jesus Christ is swept up into his father's own final loveliness. Now let me end by sharing with you why Benoit's insight is so meaningful to me. Twelve years ago when Rosalind and I married, I moved to New Orleans. I began to get deeply involved in the only leper colony in the United States, which I'm sure most of you here know is in Carville, Louisiana. It's about 20 miles from Baton Rouge, and it's about 75 miles from my home in New Orleans. I've been there dozens of times. Every time I go, I have a healing service. I go from room to room visiting the lepers, or as they're medically called, the victims of Hansen's disease. Leprosy, by the way, or Hansen's disease, is the least contagious of all contagious diseases in the world. No government employee at Carville has ever contracted leprosy from a patient in the 92 years it's been open. So there's nothing really heroic about hugging, embracing, kissing a leper, provided you can get beyond the often grotesque 
physical disfigurement that the disease has caused. On one of my visits, I'm going up the front steps. A government employee comes running toward me and says, Brennan, can you come quick and pray with Yolanda? She's dying. I had the holy oils with me for anointing. I go to Yolanda's room on the second floor, and I sit down in her bed. This is a woman, 37 years old, who five years earlier must have been physically one of the most stunning, beautiful creatures that God ever made. I don't mean just a cute or a pretty or an attractive woman. I mean that kind of blinding physical beauty that would cause a man or woman to stop on the street and go, wow. Yolanda has the largest, most translucent, and most mesmerizing brown eyes I've ever seen. They're set in this exquisitely chiseled face with high cheekbones, long black hair down to a slender waist, a striking bust. Now the ravages of the leprosy have taken their toll. Her nose is pressed into her face. Her mouth is contorted. Both ears are distended. And she has no fingers in either hand, just two little stumps. Two years earlier, her husband divorced her because of the social stigma attached to leprosy. And they've forbidden the two boys, 16 and 14 years old, ever to go visit their mother. And the sons have dutifully obeyed. Yolanda was dying literally an abandoned, forsaken woman. I anointed with oil, I prayed with her, and I turned around and put the top back in the vial of oil when the room filled with a brilliant light. Well, it had been raining when I came in, so without looking up, I just said, Abba, thanks for the sunshine. Maybe that'll cheer her up. I looked out the window, still raining, dark, overcast. Then I looked up at Yolanda's face, and if I live to be 200 years old, I will never find the words to describe what I saw. I need to say this. I bring what I would call a healthy skepticism to all these claims for dramatic healing. I believe the power of Jesus to heal is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. But when I see all the phonies and fakers and charlatans on television with these earpieces tuned in to get personal information about the person they're talking to, if there's a healing take place, get it medically verified by two sources, and just certainly Jesus can heal. But I bring that healthy skepticism. With Yolanda, I certainly had it. When I looked at her, her face was like a sunburst over the Sandias. It was like a thousand sunbeams streaming out of her face, and they were so brilliant, I had to turn and shield my eyes. I got to tell you this also. Guys my age, ordained in the priesthood in the Catholic Church in the early 60s, we were trained, you never, ever get emotionally involved with people in the ministry, especially with women, because that's going to compromise your effectiveness. You're going to get so caught up in their loss, their grief, their suffering, you're going to just become a blithering, bubbling, useless person. So we were trained, always maintain a certain kind of priestly detachment, put up this clerical wall so you can give out these words of wisdom that you were told that people were dying to hear. Well, I've been infected with a lot of that garbage, and it really is garbage. But again, back in the early 60s, Catholics were not a biblical people. We were biblically illiterate. In fact, when I was a kid, and Jim can probably verify, we were discouraged from reading the Bible. In fact, I was told by the nuns not to read it. Why? Because they said, back in the 1500s, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther picked up the Bible, read it, walked out of the church, never came back. So leave the Bible to the Protestants. We got our sacred traditions, and we can do quite well without it. So, of course, here I am, biblically illiterate, with no knowledge of the Jesus who wept over his city and over his friend, who did not pass through the world without emotional engagement, who was deeply caught up in the struggles of his people. Well, God in his mercy has been setting me free of a lot of that clerical uptightness. But with Yolanda, I still had a bucket of it. Here's the woman about to jump out of her skin with joy, and in my most detached priestly voice, I said, uh, <clears throat> Yolanda, you uh, look very happy. <laughs> she said, oh, Father. She's a Mexican-American, still has a slight accent. She said, oh, Father, I am so happy. I asked, will you tell me why? She said, yes. The Abba of Jesus just told me that he would take me home today. You know, oh God, 
What did the Abba of Jesus say to you, Yolanda? This is why he said, Brittany, come now, my love, my lovely one, come. For you, the winter is past, the snow over and gone, the flower appear in the land, the season of joyful song has come. But then he said, come now, my love, my Yolanda, come. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is beautiful. Come now, my love. My lovely one, come. Six hours later, our little leprous body was swept up into the Father's own final loveliness. That same afternoon, I learned that Yolanda was illiterate. She'd never read the Bible, any other book in her whole life. You know, on a given day, at a specific hour, perhaps when you least expect it, the Abba of Jesus, your Abba, standing on the eternal shores, is going to gently beckon to you. Come now, my love. My lovely one, come. For you, the winter is past. And without fear, shame, anxiety, you're going to wade through rivers of living water. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians, you're going to be reunited with everyone you've ever known, loved, and lost through death. And then, you're going to look into the eyes of your Abba and finally understand why he and he alone seduced and ravished the heart of his only begotten son. Would you gently close your eyes and join me in prayer? Once again, center down. Sink into the center of your soul. Become aware of the presence of the risen Christ within you. And recall his word. If any one of you love me, you'll be true to my word. My Abba will love you. We'll come to you and make our home within you. Your Abba is not simply up there and out there as creator of the universe, but dwelling deep within you. In faith, just crawl up in his lap. Become like the little child. Jesus said we must learn to resemble, to enter the kingdom. Rest your head in his shoulder. And as the spirit moves you, speak to him. A simple cry like Abba. Abba, I belong to you. Or communicate with him in a silence beyond words. Now it's very probable that more than one person here tonight despairs of ever having a real relationship with God as their Abba because their relationship with their human father, their earthly father, was either non-existent or negative. Maybe your father died when you were very little, you never knew him. Maybe your parents got divorced when you were at an early age, and you seldom saw your father except on infrequent visits. Maybe he was a traveling salesman, never home. Or maybe he was home all the time, and he believed if you spared the rod, you spoiled the child. There may have been physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse or simply neglect that made you, f left you feeling you weren't important, there was something missing in you. Maybe it was your mother. Like my poor mother was so self-absorbed, so anxiety-ridden about concern for money. She never had any time for me. Or maybe you got rejected by a friend you gave your heart to. That friend said, I don't like you anymore. Maybe you got betrayed by an enemy. But some experience of abandonment and rejection so painful you said, I'm never going to trust anybody again, even God himself. Jesus wants us to have a real relationship with his Abba so much, he'll use all his healing power to overcome any kind of mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual block to that relationship. So now as we close the evening, I ask you to take a risk with me and join me in a prayer called the Healing of Memories. And to do this, I ask you simply, in faith, to slip your hand into the hand of Jesus 
and take a trip with him back down memory lane. Walk back to that person who wounded you, failed you, rejected you, hurt you, broke your heart. Try to picture the clothes the person is wearing. Does this encounter take place indoors or outdoors? Now see Jesus let go of your hand, walk up to that very same person, and hear Jesus say to them, what you did was not a sign of malice, but a symptom of pain, a symptom of your own deep feelings of insecurity, inadequacy, and inferiority. I see the genuine sorrow in your heart, the true repentance. And I tell you, your sin is both forgiven and forgotten, washed away in my blood. Today is a new beginning. Now see Jesus turn to you and hear him say, I want you to forgive this person as I have forgiven you. Every day you pray, our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I want you to let go of any resentment you've been carrying, any grudge you've been nursing, any hatred you've been harboring in your heart. I want you to forgive as you have been forgiven. Perhaps you say, Jesus, I've tried that. But the memories are still so vivid. The pain is still so real. The hurt is still so deep that left to my own resources, I am powerless to forgive and to reconcile. But this moment, with you standing at my side, Jesus, I ask you to enter into my heart and touch any experience in my past life that needs to be healed. You know me so much better than I know myself. Bring your love to every corner of my heart. And wherever you discover the wounded child, touch, console, release the little boy or the little girl within me. Walk back through my life, Jesus, to the moment I was conceived. Cleanse my bloodlines and free me from anything that might have exerted a negative influence at that moment. Bless me as I was being formed within my mother's womb and remove any barrier to wholeness that might have affected me during those months of confinement. Jesus, grant me a deep desire to want to be born. Thank you for being there at the moment of my birth to welcome me onto the earth, to assure me that you would never fail me or desert me. Jesus, I ask you to surround my infancy with your light and touch any memory that keeps me from being free. If I needed more of a mother's love, then lift me up into the lap of Abba, who is the mother and father of us all. The Abba who cried out through Isaiah, even if a mother were to forget her baby, and be without tenderness for the child of her womb. Never will I forget or be lacking in tenderness for you. Ask Abba to rock me back and forth, to tell me stories, to fill in those empty parts of me which need the comfort and warmth only a mother can give. Jesus, there's been a lot of my childhood I can't remember and a lot of denial. If I have been deprived in the area of a father's love, let me be free this moment to cry Abba, Abba, with every fiber of my being. If I needed more of a father's love and security to assure me that I was wanted and loved very deeply, I ask you to hold me and let me feel your strong protective arms. Give me renewed confidence and courage to face the trials of the world because I know my Abba's love will support me even when I stumble and fall. Walk back through my life, Jesus, and comfort me when others were not kind. Heal the wounds of encounters which left me frightened, which caused me to retreat into myself and erect barriers to people. If I have felt lonely, abandoned, and rejected by others, grant me through your healing love a new sense of my worth as a person and a due awareness of my dignity as Abba's child. Oh Jesus, I just discovered 
the person I'm standing before who's crying out for forgiveness and begging for reconciliation is wearing the clothes I have on right now. Yes, myself, Lord. For so long I've been so hard on me. I've believed you that you've forgiven me, but I've not been able to forgive myself. In this moment, with you at my side, Jesus, with you nodding yes, I want you to forgive this person, your very own self, as I have forgiven you. Jesus, in your name and by the blood of your cross, I forgive myself for every time I fail my parents, the times I wasn't there when they needed me, the times I took their love for granted rather than with gratitude. Jesus, I forgive myself for all the times I failed my children and my friends and did not model to them the unconditional love of Abba God for me. Jesus, I forgive myself for all the times I sought sex without love and used another person either to fill up my emptiness or to shore up my sagging self-esteem. Jesus, I forgive myself for all the times I refused to stand with you in the loneliness of your passion and death and sought to escape through the, the abuse of alcohol, other chemicals, through workaholism, shallow friendships, idle gossip, shallow reading. Jesus, I forgive myself for all the times I spoke badly of others, tried to ruin their reputation or damage their good name, either because they've spoken badly of me or because I didn't feel worthy of their friendship. Jesus, I look at you, and the tears in your eyes are like rivers of living water, washing me clean of the shame of my past. I will never look back again except to praise you for your unbearable forgiveness, your infinite patience with me, and your tender love <clears throat> that keeps no score of wrongs. Oh, Jesus, on this 12th day of September, Here in Newport Beach, I recommit my life to you. My body, my mind, and my spirit. And I thank you for making me whole. As the spirit in my heart cries, Abba, I belong to you. Would you please?